Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. We're in the middle of a podcast series through the Sermon on the Mount. As you know, we're starting before Matthew 5, where we typically begin with the Sermon on the Mount. We're all the way back to Matthew 3, looking at the baptism of Jesus. I had planned on moving on to the temptation of Jesus, but there's one last podcast that I want to do uh, that's curious and interesting and fascinating and uh, needs to be said, okay? So uh, one last thing we need to consider. We looked at the baptism of Jesus related to the people's broken relationship with God, right? Sin, sinfulness, unfaithfulness. But there is another aspect of this particular unique baptism. In addition to being about repentance, it was also about being ordained as a king. So background. Let's get in the Wayback Machine. Israel had been a slave nation for generations in about 1500 BC or so, 1400 BC or so. God raises up a prophet, Moses, to call his people out of Egypt to be free to serve him in the wilderness. And the process was later described as an adoption. Adoption of God's Son. Listen to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Paul picks this up in his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In this exodus, Israel becomes ordained as the son of God, his firstborn son, not because they were righteous or strong or good or smart or attractive, because God chose them, all right? And so all of those who turned from Egypt to go into the wilderness, who passed through the Red Sea, and who were baptized by that process, right? Again, a dry baptism, a dry cleaning. They were baptized into Moses would be God's sons. And these were then identified as God's unique covenant people. After the baptism, listen to this. Does this sound familiar? They were led into the wilderness to be tested this is exactly what we're going to look at in Matthew 4, but this time Jesus, God's son, right? But different from Jesus's experience, in the wilderness, the people of Israel were tested and they failed. They always seemed to, to fail. No judgment, me too. They turned away from God. It seemed like every chance they got, they proved to be unfaithful, unworthy. And even after they entered the promised land, they wouldn't be, couldn't be faithful children, sons and daughters of God. And so God disciplines them as appropriate for his children, sons and daughters, and at times harshly, humanly speaking. And finally, he sends the Assyrians and Babylonians to severely discipline his son, his daughter, Israel. They took them away into foreign land. And once again, they became a slave nation, a repeat of Egypt. But God is a covenant, promise-keeping, merciful deity. And it was his promise on the line that Israel would be his people, that he would be their God. It was his name, his reputation at stake, humanly speaking. So he sent prophets to prophesy of another day, another coming day, the day of the Lord. And this was the day, this was the time that he would once again call his true son or her daughter back into the wilderness, right? Which is exactly what happens in Matthew 3. 
They go from Jerusalem and Judea, they cross the wilderness and end up at the Jordan River. So they are coming through the wilderness. They're coming from the West. This would be both a day of judgment and wrath and a day of rescue and rejoicing for those who are his children, those he rescues, those he saves. The day of the Lord is portrayed as coming from the wilderness. Uh, You can look at Ezekiel 20, verses 33 to 38, and see this also prophesied. The day of the Lord is the picture of a mighty warrior king coming to judge his failed, unfaithful, wicked people and to establish his kingdom with a new king, with a new son, a faithful remnant among his subjects. And so it's going to be a time of great rejoicing. Uh, Listen to Isaiah 40, 1 through 3. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So somebody's paying for those sins. And God is not waving his hands. Verse 3. The voice of one calling. This will sound familiar to those tracking the Sermon on the Mount. The voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. So this day that John the Baptist refers to is going to be a day of restoration of Israel, of the son to sonship status, and the opportunity of really another calling, another chance. It'll be a time of intimacy or renewed intimacy, restored, rescued intimacy with God. Uh, Again, Hosea chapter 2. And by the time of Jesus, the people were at least nominally prepared. This was in their head. But I would suggest that the, 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 the signs are that they were fearful and ashamed and guilty, guilt ridden that God's coming and they're not ready. And so their consciences were pricked when they heard the preaching of John the Baptist, and they ran, no doubt, to repent uh, at the hand of John. But where does Jesus, the faithful son, come in? What if what, Je- what, 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 if what Isaiah was talking about was not a just punishment that was earned, but rather a rescue where someone else, on the behalf of the failed sons and daughters, suffers what they were owed? a substitution. All they could do is get out of the way of God's rescue. And so I'm interpreting it, make a way for the way. Lay down all of your supposed righteousness. They weren't enough, not even close. Even this repentance isn't righteous enough. Set it all down at the feet of the true son, Jesus, and he won't overlook your sin. He's going to go and pay for it himself. And you just receive this gift. And then you can cast off the guilt because it'll have no control over you anymore. You can cast off your shame. It will have no power over you anymore. You can begin to push back on that critical, nasty inner voice that says you're not enough, that God must hate you, that you're a disappointment. And listen, just get out of his way. Right? But I get it. They didn't have any idea that this was the point. And neither would I have had any clue and terror Shame and guilt, the Jews were willing to risk all of their reputation, all of their honor uh, to to plunge into shame by being repentant, being baptized by this guy out of the desert. And, And hopefully this was enough. And it wasn't, right? That's what we said last time. John the Baptist was the prophesied Elijah, the one who would come and to prepare the way into the wilderness for the coming son, right? Not the failed one. A second exodus was underway, and because the kingdom was near again. All right, we're looking at Matthew's version, but I want to go back to Mark's because Mark 
narratively makes it so clear what went down. And I referred to it a little bit. I just want to say it again just to get it clear in our heads. He uses a neat literary device called parallelism to open up this next clue to the identity of Jesus. So in it, we see a parallel. All right. Uh, This is what Mark says. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him, okay, confessing their sins. Take note of that. They were baptized by him in the Jordan. And there is no response by God, by a prophet, by a priest, no acceptance, no nothing, right? Now, a parallel, almost exact in the Greek, Jesus comes from Nazareth in Galilee. So the whole Judean countryside came out, and in parallel, Jesus came out. No confession of sin like anyone else, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan, almost exact Greek phrase, so two sons being baptized, But this time it's different. As Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And there's a response. A voice from heaven says, you're it. You're my beloved son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. So one of the clues to unlock the mystery of of this new son being baptized, we find in Psalm 2. Uh, You can take a look at uh, 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 to 16. We will end Psalm 2. Who is this son, this anointed one, the warrior king? Here we go, Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and their rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is his son. Uh, Obviously, the Lord and the son are on the same side and they're alone. Let us break their chains, they say, that's the kings of the earth, and throw off their fetters. Well, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those, all those who take refuge in him. So Psalm 2 was historically, we believe, performed as a liturgical ordination psalm for the kings of Israel. When they were ordained, they became technically the son or daughter, if there was a queen of God. And there was one, one queen, likely performed at all the ordinations of the kings, perhaps reenacted every year during the Feast of Tabernacles, some believe, during the fall. And the drama pictures the ideal Davidic king, standing against the forces and kingdoms of evil, and Psalm 2 represents the installation of the king. And the parts were likely, we think, dramatized or put in the form of liturgy, climaxing in the formal ordination, verse 7, where God himself publicly proclaims who his son is and who his son isn't, a public messaging of an adoption. One person, the royalty, becomes the son of God. There was a time in David's life, this is after he had been ordained as king, he he was considering building the temple for God. Maybe it was during the Feast of Tabernacles, and God speaks to the prophet Nathan about David and says, go and tell him this. So 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 and following. 
Now then, God tells Nathan, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flocks to be ruler over my people Israel. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Verse 14, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Clearly a tip of the hat to Psalm 2. And by the way, to Matthew 4, back to 2 Samuel 7, 14. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Okay? So, again, Psalm 2 liturgy was likely played out every year as a representation of God's favor over his son, the king or queen, triumph over chaos, enthronement and creation, his ongoing recreative work and blessing. It's perfect for what Jesus is trying to accomplish. And this king plays the role as the favored representative of God. All right? And And the king relates to God this way. God is the king over all of the nations. In Psalm 47, another liturgical psalm, uh, God is declared to have ascended amid shouts of great joy. God is seated on the throne as kings of all the earth. In in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 5 and following, David claims that the Lord has chosen Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. The enemies of God are the personal enemies of the king, Psalm 18 and 22 and 110 and 118 and others. In Psalm 118, the Davidic king is portrayed as helpless before the enemies of the Lord until he pleads to the Lord as a rescuer, verse 6. Then God preserves the king according to the promises of the covenant. He trains him, verse 36, and arms him, verse 32. And then the king can pursue his enemies. This is all summed up in verses 46 and following, where God is exalted as the one who gives the king, his beloved son, great victories, right? To David and his descendants forever. And now to Jesus. So again, remember Hosea 11, verses 1 to 2, out of Israel, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Well, Israel is declared to be God's corporate son. How does the king relate to the covenant people Israel? Well, the king represents the people to God, just like Jesus will now represent the new kingdom's people to God. He's the federal head. As the king is blessed, the people are blessed. So the people who are found in the king, with the king, also get the blessings the king has earned. As the king is chastised, the people are chastised. But this isn't going to happen with Jesus because he's perfect. God's work, God works his covenant promises through his son on the throne. Psalm 89 shows us this in terms of suffering. We're reminded of the covenant to David in verse, verses 3 to 4, verses 5 to 15, proclaim the greatness of God's throne. In verses 14 to 29, we see once again the well-being of the people and the king are linked, right? Very important. When Jesus is proclaiming well-being to the people, there's an assumption, I think, in his words that they're linked with him. The king, again, back to Psalm 89, our shield belongs to the Lord. He was the one who was anointed with the sacred oil, and it is with him that God's promises and his blessings reside. So he he alone can say who's blessed because he makes it so, and he will ultimately be reestablished as the firstborn son of God. And this was what happened 
in that baptism. So God proclaims that Jesus is that ultimate prophesied son that each human king's shadow pointed to, but never quite fulfilled. None of those kings' shoulders were broad enough to carry the robe until Jesus. And he's the rightful king who uniquely owns the favor of God, God himself says so in the baptism, and owns the blessings of God, and he can pass them on to whomever he so rescues, he desires. So the ordination of Jesus at the hand of the new Elijah John involves an anointing with both water and the Spirit of God, and then a claim of adoption to be to have become God's son, or to be publicly proclaimed God's son in this case and proclaimed by God himself. So so what prophet could possibly do it? Well, God did it himself. So something new and radical was happening that had been long prophesied. Then this notion of the sonship of Jesus is finally fulfilled in the baptism of Jesus. Then the new and complete son was led into the wilderness for tempting and trials, just like the old son was, but this son is going to pull it off and be successful. And everyone can see it. And we'll look at that in, in a couple of podcasts. But God already proclaimed that there was only one son who was worthy, who has earned, who deserves the blessings of God. Only one can be called blessed by God, technically speaking. The the Torah says so. You have to be perfect. And Jesus will repeat that in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Only Jesus has earned or deserves blessings per Torah. And beyond that, you know, the mind and desire of God the Father and his favor. No one else. So stop trying to earn it. You can't. There's another way of getting it. And so when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he's not and cannot be teaching that that this is a new way of gaining God's blessings and a new way, if you work harder, of gaining God's favor. You know, do this and God will also say, well done, good and faithful servant over you. Not possible. It's just not possible. You've already screwed it up. So have I. That would be going backwards in prophetic history. There is now only one way to get blessed and to avoid the consequences of curses, and that's to be found in the covenant under the covenant headship of the approved Son, to be in Jesus, and only the Spirit of Christ can make that happen. All right? You'll probably, if you haven't heard that before, you'll probably have to re-listen to this podcast, and it's a head-turner. I mean, it's just a head-exploder. So let me review what we've been learning and add one thing to it. So the Jesus who will stand and preach to the masses is not just a qualified teacher, right? An ancient Yoda or Buddha. He's unique. And as we have said, he is hypernomian, meaning no one has taken the law more seriously than Jesus. Two, he has come to rescue failures, the loveless, the unlovable, the lonely, the isolated, those who are not enough, those who feel like they, they're celestially disconnected from God and deserve to be. Three, he's the, he is a teacher of life principles, the greatest ever, but we're just not going to do them. And four, when he speaks, power goes forth, and it actually changes people's lives and motivations and identities. And five, he regularly humiliates himself to do his thing. No wonder regular people were drawn to him. They weren't ashamed because he didn't look down at them. He didn't use false pity. He was one of them by incarnation, even though he wasn't. When beat up people saw his face, his eyes, his posture, they just felt welcomed and were honored. And sixth that I'm adding on this podcast, he is the only approved son of God who is due the blessings of God, period. Okay, 
we'll pick this up next time on the next podcast. I do want to do the revised screen version of the baptism of Jesus narrative in all one fell swoop. So tune in, just sit back and listen. And until then, let people know about this podcast. This can be life-changing to those who have felt like spirit failures, who are afraid that they've screwed up or haven't done enough. Just let them know. More to come next time. Questions, comments, bill at gospel-app.com. Take heart, child of God. I found myself on a ledge, three stories high, at some condominiums, contemplating my life and struggling to understand my purpose. Have you ever found yourself on the ledge? My name is Billy Yates. I'm a caring father, mentor, and friend. In my new podcast, Billy and the Goat, I share the life-changing events that shaped who I am today to remind you that no matter how far you've fallen, God can help you get up and thrive. Listen now at lifeaudio.com.